If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. If you've been with us, you know we've been exploring 2 Timothy. Did I say 2 Timothy chapter 4? Good, all right. I've had a really slow morning on details, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you've been with us, you uh, know that we've been talking about entrusting the gospel, as Paul entrusted to Timothy, that he might entrust to others. And we've been uh, looking at all the different aspects of what this looks like, relationship, and, and there's been some powerful themes here. We've talked about... Uh, leadership and power. We've talked about morality and sexuality. We've talked about uh, finances and money and contentment. And we've talked about uh, all scripture being God-breathed. And, and it's, been a, it's been a great, passionate series. And, and then you come to the end of the book, verses 9 through 22, and just look at it and see if you see a problem with this. This is, this is Paul's Facebook, Okay. I, this is like, this is the person here, and Demas, and Mark, and Luke, and all. It, it, it's a little difficult to try to get your arms around what, how do you end such a powerful series talking about this person's here, this person's there? As a matter of fact, we gave Paul a Facebook this week. There we go, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Scott Bradford created that. Later today, I'm going to be able to go on there, set it up, so if you check my update later today, I'll say Rick became friends with the Apostle Paul. <laughs> how cool is that? But, but in, in all of this... We see Paul's humanity, and we don't know a lot about Paul. There is one second-century description of Paul as a man small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, well-built, with eyebrows meeting. It's like a face for radio, all right? Uh, Rather long nose, full of grace. For sometimes he seemed like a man, and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. Just a very normal, ordinary, unibrow guy, you know? And... (laughs) But every now and then, you could just see the spark of the divine in who he was, and... This is the Paul that we read about. And one of the values of this passage is going to be, as you see, we're going to see a lot about the relationships Paul has. And one of the things this will do, it will challenge any of you who are undervaluing spiritual relationships in your walk with Christ. If you are at a place where you're kind of going along your journey and you maybe you do the church thing and you go to a few things and you act morally and you're doing all these trying to do the right church stuff, but there's nobody, if you're a man, there's no other men in your life who are going to fit some of the categories I'm going to walk you through. You're going to find that you're undervaluing those relationships and you are, you are short, you are keeping your spiritual maturity from reaching its height and depth. And, and you're going to find if you're a woman the same way, if you're just kind of walking things out and you may be just, you know, a sweet, wonderful person and just but you don't have any women in your life that are speaking into your life and walking with you, you're, you're losing something of the, of the depth of what God has called you to. So if you're undervaluing relationships this morning, you're going to be challenged by Paul's life in these, these verses. But I want to tell you this. If you're overvaluing those relationships, you're going to be challenged too. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, and I'll explain what I mean. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now, the picture that you should get from this story is this. When Paul has been in prison once before, he's been brought back for trial. This is under Nero's persecution. Nero is a sadistic hater of Christians who enjoyed not only uh, making sure they were dead, but torturing them along the way and making examples of them through their torture. Most likely, the judge that Paul will stand before at this first offense is Nero. 
And it would have occurred in a basilica, which is a large building with a long hall-like nave. It's a very long, like you might see a cathedral you may have seen in Europe. And then going across it horizontally, so it's the shape of a cross was the rest of it. On the front of this long, narrow building would be what was called the tribunal, which was a platform. On the, on the platform was an ornate carved ivory chair in which the judge sat to weigh uh, the Roman citizen who has been brought to trial. Around the judge would be his uh, advisors. Those advisors could not make any judgments. They could only speak in their perception. He was the lone judge, most likely, again, Nero. And in the basilica, in front of the judge, would be the prosecutor, te- the prosecuting team, and all the people who had come to help with the prosecution would all sit there together as an in mass Uh, blaming or assigning guilt to the defendant. On the other side, the defendant would sit, and around him would be all of his advocates who had come. So you'd have the mass of those who would accuse and the mass of those who would advocate. And then on one side would be the women, on the other side would be the men, and most likely in this particular scenario, because Paul is public enemy number one of Nero, It's probably full and teeming and jeering and taunting. And there this man stood with not one advocate around him. And he will learn a lesson that we must all learn. That at the end of the day, we all need Jesus Christ to be our faithful friend. Because we are all going to come to places, including facing our sin, facing disease, facing horribly difficult circumstances, facing relational disappointments, facing the person you thought was going to be your helper who's gone, facing, facing financial difficulty. We're all going to come to that place where even those most trusted, wonderful people are just not enough, even if they're standing by us. And Paul's going to give us hope this morning that Jesus will be there standing, always. So if you're undervaluing relationships, you just don't have these kind of folks in your life, you're going to be challenged this morning with the need for them. But if you're overvaluing relationships, thinks, no, I can kind of do this just with my friends. I can face this, we'll be okay. And you're not leaning completely on Jesus, primarily on him then you're going to be challenged this morning. So let's find our way through this. And we're going to go and, and we'll start with verse 9, and we'll work our way through. And, and I'm going to put up just a few categories because the first person or, that Paul has in his life is his beloved spiritual son, Timothy. Look in chapter 4, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Now, he's speaking again here to Timothy, and while he doesn't identify him here, let's look at some language in other passages that we have. Philippians 2.22, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.2, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, I'm going to use Father's Day to talk about the spiritual father relationship of Paul and Timothy for us as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and what that looks like. But this week, I just want you to recognize this. Paul cherished and enjoyed and appreciated and found great comfort in his spiritual son, as will you. We were all made individually and corporately to be involved in relationships that bring spiritual offspring. 
Some of, some of you have the gift of just you're incredible at mentoring and, and walking with and coaching and walking with a person. Others, I'm not as strong at that, but I can be a part of a team that does that, or I can pave my place in the church that does that. But spiritual offspring bring hope and comfort and joy. Paul knows he's about to get his head chopped off. And one of the great joys of his life is to have Timothy near him to remind him that this is not in vain in this life. And that as he goes to Christ, he is leaving behind someone who will continue the gospel. So the spiritual offspring of a beloved son. But Paul also has in his life Demas, who is what we might call an unfaithful quitter. Look at verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The for there is a very significant word. Timothy, come to me soon for Demas is gone. In other words, Timothy, I am really hurt. I, this is really hard. And it would really help me if you would come and be with me. Paul needed that relationship. Demas, we find, was involved with Paul's ministry. Colossians 4.14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, which means Demas was traveling with Paul. Philemon 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. Demas was right alongside Paul until it got too hard and until Demas decided, I'm not giving that up to follow Jesus. You can only imagine the disappointment or the discouragement for Paul, how hurt that was, hurtful that was to him. In reading for, and preparing for this sermon, because uh, I really did, I went to anybody I could because I thought, how am I going to preach? This is just a lot of people stuff. And then I finally understood the passage. But one uh, author writing on this was John MacArthur, and he gave this illustration that was just so powerful to me. And he says a true story. He was running track in college, and he was on a, a relay team. And I think he was like the first or second leg, and he had handed the baton off. And the team was running well. They were making time. They were just right on pace for where they need to be. The third runner had the baton in his hand. He's running full speed, and all of a sudden he just makes a detour, jogs into the grassy part of the infield, and sits down. Well, the team is just like, oh, my God. You know, he's, he's pulled a hamstring. He's centered his foot. The whole team rushes over him and says, man, what happened? What happened? He said, I just don't feel like doing this. This is a true story. I just I don't feel like doing this today. I just, I'm just not up to this. This is why runners don't carry guns in this kind of competition, right? <laughs> Starting gun is blank, all right? Can you imagine? You have trained, you have worked, and he doesn't feel like finishing his part? It's just a glimpse of what Paul felt. And I challenge you in this. Number one, while it is, well, let me just say, it, it's not probable that I won't finish this race, but it's possible. Because the power, money, sex, seductions of this world pull at me like they do you. And sometimes when it's been really difficult and overwhelming and challenging, you just think, you know what? I don't need this hard stuff in my life like the gospel and what I have to do to live with people in this. You must apply the grace of God to those places in your life. You cannot ignore them, think they'll go away, think they don't matter. They have the potential to take you out of this race. And if we are to finish well, 
we're going to need each other and God's grace in each other's lives to bring ourselves back to that truth. That's something I want you to know. The second thing I want you to know is you do not get to do this by yourself. If you run off the track, you damage and dishonor the name of Christ and you discourage and disappoint the body of Christ and it matters. Do not take lightly your race. Don't think, well, I'll go to church. Maybe I won't go to church. I'll be in, a, I'll be in a relationship. I won't be in a relationship. I'll deal with that particular sin or I won't deal with that. I'll weigh my options. Don't weigh your options. Run your race. Because it really matters to Christ and it matters to us and one another. Paul uses the language here. He said, basically, the word deserted is, Demas left me in a lurch. That's what he means. Paul goes on to describe another set of people, a diverse, scattered community. And this would take a lot of time for me to name all the people in here. There's unknown people like Crescens, who's sent to Galatia, which means he must, you know, that's a pretty challenging place. There's Carpus, who keeps Paul's only three possessions he has, his cloak, his parchment, which would be his Bible, Old Testament, his writings too, and books. And that's all. They, and so we know those are trusted people. We hear names like Priscilla and Aquila later in the cha- chapter, verses 19 and 20. These are names we've known from Corinth. They've traveled all around. We hear Titus, uh, Titus who we know is a trusted equipper of God's people. And we find, we find that Titus went to Dalmatia, and in Dalmatia he led the ministry there. And history tells us they had 101 converts there in Dalmatia, but we don't know. Oh, yeah, I didn't get that. Okay, anyway. Okay, first service. I, here was my thing with first service. I said, I'm going to try the 101 Dalmatian joke, all right? If it goes well second service, that means there's something wrong with the first service people. If I have the same reaction, then I may reconsider the whole thing. All right, so I think we know what the problem was. I kind of like that. Anyway, so we have all these well-known, unknown, little-known people, and they all comprise this diverse community. And let me tell you why they're important. Because if you don't have a community outside of yourself that you're connected to, you're going to start thinking that you and what God's doing in your life is the center of reality. You're going to think you're the center of the universe. What you want, what you like, what's happening in your life, and you'll forget that all over the world God is at work. And we are connected to something much bigger. And the great joy you'll have in your life is to play your little bitty part in the big picture. The great joy we'll have as a church is to play our little bitty part in a much bigger picture. So we need a diverse, scattered community that we're in relationship with. And then Paul introduces his steadfast confidant. And it's just in a very, very small line. But look in verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. Now, how strong of a statement is that? He's the one person who's right here. Now, these others have been sent. That doesn't mean they've abandoned and deserted uh, like Demas. But he's there. And you know what? He's always there. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone except the Apostle Paul. And yet, for the most part, he's a pretty invisible voice. Every now and then in Acts, he'll say, we, we, we. He's pretty much a historical historian, so Luke is, the Gospel of Luke is very precise in what it tells us about God, about Jesus and his life. Luke is, is that steadfast confidant who just doesn't go away. It's the person you talk to when it's hard. It's the person you struggle through things with. It's the person who doesn't get the, the credit or the, 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 the upfront, but you, there's no way it happens without him. I, um, here's another. You, you don't think God's a genius? What is Luke? 
Paul calls him the beloved physician. Luke is a doctor. Is there anybody in the world who need a doctor more than Paul? Listen to this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger, danger, danger. Toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And here is Luke all the time bandaging, caring, nurturing, and enabling Paul to keep going. You need a person like that in your life, folks. You need somebody you can go to who helps bandage and work and touch and be there. You need a person who's steadfast and is there for you. I have a couple of people like that. I can't survive without them. I also want to tell you, I just put this on my heart this week, that that within our church body we have the person that's the Luke here. And most of you don't have any idea who it is, but it's Kevin Huggins, our associate pastor. You don't see him up here on the platform like you do me, Michael, Greg, Jacob. You You don't see him in a lot of the community groups, but he really is our Luke, and he is our steadfast confidant that we depend on so much invisibly to be the church we are. So individually and corporately, you need that person. If you don't have that person, would you begin praying for them? And if God doesn't supply that person, would you become that person? Would you become that steadfast confidant? Would you become that person a person can lean on for grace and truth? We've got to have a whole church full of those people if we're going to be who God called us to be. The next person Paul tells us about is going to go in the category of a restored relationship. A restored relationship. Look in verse 11 again. Now, you're starting to see Paul has a rich relational life spiritually. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the anointed writer of the majority of the New Testament that's not the Gospels. This is the man who is the founder of the Gentile church. This is the man upon whom is given so much grace to lead that he has a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being arrogant and prideful and being assumed that the power is from him. And this man needs relationships. Deep relationships. Do not undervalue these relationships. In verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, if you know the history of Mark, Mark is a young man when Jesus is, is alive and in the flesh on earth. And, and Mark is um, connected to, some say cousin, some say nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas is the guy who spent 14 years with Paul, preparing Paul to go on his first missionary journey. When they go on their first missionary journey, and they go out to an island area, it's a really beautiful area, it's a very effective first missionary journey, John Mark goes with them. Later they get ready to go again, and John Mark finds out they're going to Pamphylia, which is a hostile place, which we seem... It seems best to say that there was a malaria or some kind of a fever epidemic there. And John Mark's like, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. I could, the first one's good. I'm not sure I want to do this. Seven years later, Paul and Barnabas are about to set out from Jerusalem in Acts 15, and Barnabas wants to take his relative, John Mark, with him again. And Paul says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. This is Luke writing. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Later it says they had a sharp disagreement. Now, there's no sin involved here. It's not that, you know, we don't even know, can you say one was right or wrong? We don't know all that. What we do know is Paul said, I'm not taking him with me. It's not going to work. I want someone else. And he takes Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. 
And many years later, we find Paul saying, bring John Mark to me because, you see in your text, he is useful for ministry. The relationship has been restored. We have evidence that's been restored before this. We leave other uh, epistles. But notice his use of the word useful for ministry. There will be four Gospels written. They will be written after 2 Timothy. The four Gospels will be written by Matthew, who will emphasize the Jewish heritage of Jesus as Messiah King. They will be written by Luke, who will emphasize in great detail the Son of Man, the humanity of Jesus. They will be written by John, who will emphasize the Son of God, the Word became flesh, Godness of Jesus, his divinity. And the fourth will be written by Mark. And Mark will emphasize Jesus as servant. It will be simple. It will be uh, just like little video clips of Jesus the servant. You see, Paul, through this restored relationship, is calling out something in Mark that will later have great fruit. So here's an important point. Disagreements are a part of the body. Sharp disagreements are sometimes a part of the body. Do everything within your power to restore relationships. Sometimes you cannot do it. Um, if you live long enough as a believer, you're going to have a Demas in your life who just deserts you. You thought you would be sitting with them rocking in the rocking chair at the very end of the spiritual journey, and they're nowhere to be found. They just went off the tracks. Somewhere in your life, you're going to have a disagreement a breaking apart. You may have it in a church that you came from to come to this church. Restore relationship to the, to the, to the, to the degree it's up to you and your capacity. Restore relationships because you never know what God is going to do. And then a dangerous enemy. Look in verse 14. A dangerous enemy. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Somewhere along the line, someone's going to oppose the gospel in you. Now, Alexander the coppersmith may have been an idol maker in in Ephesus who was angry because his income was going to be destroyed. He may have been one of those people in the basilica who stood and testified falsely against Paul to get him accused and executed. But whatever he was, he was a dangerous person. And you're going to find those people. Again, I'm not talking about people that disagree with you. I'm talking about people who oppose the fact that your truth attacks their idols. That your truth steps into their power. That your truth confronts their sexuality. That your truth calls into question their use of their money. And some will become enemies and some may be even hostile. Now Paul tells us just briefly about one more group of friends. I just want to touch base on them because I want to get to the end here and hit this last set of points. He had a group of new near friends. There was a group of, uh, if you will look in verse, uh, let's look together in verse 20, I think it is. Let's look there real quickly. Verse 20, 21. Do your best to come before winter. Ebilus sends greetings to you as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Those are all Latin names. That means they're Paul's new friends. And so as he came in the community, he developed new friends. If you're new in the community, I know what a challenge it is to make new relationships. If you're new to Fellowship Church, I know it's not easy to get from this big room into deep relationships. Two things. One, please don't stop trying and finding those relationships. They matter so much. Here's Paul who had all these other relationships, but he knew he needed some there in Rome. 
the Second Vile Fellowship Church. It is our responsibility to increasingly become the kind of church that makes it easier and easier for people to come into our body and find these friends. This church is not about you, and it's not about the staff. It's about Christ and inviting people into Christ. So as you come in here, if you've got relationships and friends, I know you're excited to see them because you hadn't seen them all week, and it's great, and connect with them. Don't forget to become and grow together, all of us, including me, into a place that makes it easier and easier for people to find these relationships because relationships matter so deeply. We cannot undervalue them. Now, having said all of that and spent all the time developing this, it's now important to see another group of people and why, as much as you value relationships, do not overvalue them. A fearful, flawed, and fickle crowd. Look in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now, we do not know where Luke is in this story. Um, Some have conjectured, if we look in verse 13, Carpus, who lives in Troas, which is 600 miles away, he has, again, the, the cloak, which is the heavy coat that Paul wants before winter because he's freezing. He's going to freeze in a damp, cold Roman dungeon prison. It's the only possession he has other than the ragged clothes he's wearing, uh, clothing. He wants his books because he wants to continue to read and grow, and he wants his parchments, which are probably the Old Testament, some of his writings, but also the Old Testament. Now, um, before I say that, let me say this. Paul is the anointed author through the Holy Spirit of huge portions of the New Testament, and yet he wanted his Bible. The Old Testament was his Bible. He considered precious the word of God in his imprisonment. This guy is the anointed author of huge portions of the New Testament, and he wanted his Bible. Do not miss this huge point. But it's very likely that Paul was arrested in Troas. That's why these things got left behind, taken immediately to Rome, and Luke has not caught up yet. We don't know what's happening. We don't have any indication that Luke deserted Paul because he said, Luke is with me, and there's no negative. have any, I, any sense that some of these others have the new Latin Roman friends have deserted him. But at the trial, many of those who probably had welcomed Paul at one time or another into their home or into their house church or into Rome no longer would stand next to him when it was potential of losing his head. So let me be honest with you. The crowd is not your friend. Do not spend a lot of time trying to impress, gain the love of, or connect with the crowd because they're not going to be there. We're having a Lane Kiffin love fest right now. (laughs) But let Coach Kiffin have two losing records and not find a four-star quarterback. And the crowd will turn on him on a dime, just like they did Jonathan Crompton for not being the quarterback they wanted crowd's a lot like my dog, honestly. <laughs> now, you know, I've been trying to build a relationship with my dog and improve this relationship. Last night, my wife, I am preparing a sermon, finishing my sermon. I come in the kitchen. She said, I think Abby needs a little attention. And I laid in the floor of the kitchen and rubbed that dog's belly. I am doing my part, all right? <laughs> I have been bonding, working with the sit command. We brought her into the house now. We're spending time with her. I have one, I'm going to be a pretty good dog trainer. I have one thing I've not been able to figure out how to do. 
That is how to take the first five minutes of her being in the house and turn it into a sane moment. She is an English Springer Spaniel, and I don't know if you know English Springer Spaniels, but they want your constant, undivided attention and every moment of your... They, and if you're gone for five minutes, they feel like you've been gone for five years and you've deserted them. So when my dog comes in the kitchen, she's just, she's just, her whole back end is just wagging all over the place. She's running around like crazy and just back to person, to person, to person. I've tried every command. I finally found one command that she could obey. So that yesterday, or two, a couple of days ago, she comes in. She's just going crazy. I said, Abby, be obnoxious, girl. Come on, be obnoxious. Perfect first-time obedience right there. But here's the thing about my dog. As much as I think she loves me and loves all this loving I'm giving her, if you as a perfect stranger walk in the room with a hot dog, she's yours. I mean, she will be right there. My dog's love language is meat, all right? So hot dog, steak. She, does, she has gone there. That is the crowd. They will love you for what you give to them. So it's, it's not enough to be in a crowd. You've got to be in relationships. And, and honestly, folks, the several thousand people who call us church home, it's not enough for us to be a crowd. We've got to be a church. We've got to get connected. We've got to be in relationships with some people because the crowd won't get it done. They can't be there for you. It's just humanity. It's just the reality. Paul experiences this fearful, flawed, fickle crowd, and he stands before Nero by himself. So, again, let me reiterate. Friends are critical to your spiritual journey. You need, you need a steadfast confidant. You need spiritual offspring. You need a diverse, scattered community. You need these relationships. But at the end of the day, when you stand before the sin that you struggle with, when you stand before the death of a loved one, when you stand before the cancer diagnosis, when you stand before the lost income, when you stand before the child who will not follow, when you stand before the, the relationship that you thought was here forever and has now feels like betrayal, when you stand before the divorce, when you stand in these places, including your own death one day, there is only one friend that you absolutely can and should depend on, the person of Jesus Christ, a fearless, faultless, faithful fully sufficient friend, and he is yours by grace. Even if everyone else lets you down, you do not look to your spouse to be that friend. You look for them to be a loving, steadfast, confidant, and all, but don't, they can't be that you cannot look to your kids. You cannot look to your church. Please, dear God, please don't look to me because you're going to be disappointed and discouraged real quick. It's him. And this is what happens to Paul. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I stood in the face of the Roman government seemingly at their mercy seemingly abandoned, seemingly foolish and ignorant and rejected. And the Lord came in full armor, put his arm around me and said, we will yet win this battle. And straightened up. And he said it was given to me so that the 
gospel could be proclaimed. The message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul went from feeling deserted and alone to being excited about the opportunity to speak Jesus in the basilica. Because he was with him. I have so many people in my life right now who need this. Who are facing something that is so big and so overwhelming and so painful and hard and testimony after testimony they press into that disease they press into that relational hurt they press into that that failure they press press into that that loss they press into that that hopelessness that despair they press into it and they find Jesus standing beside them with his arm around them and strengthening them as Paul said rescuing them from the lion's mouth he goes on to say this The Lord will rescue, deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It is no mistake that the language of this is the Lord's Prayer language. Do you recognize that? This is Lord's Prayer language. The Gospels haven't been written yet. The the Lord's Prayer had already been passed along and known. It is also no mistake that when Paul says, everyone deserted me, He follows it by saying, but I have not held this charge against them. Where did that come from? The lips of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Stephen, the first martyr, who Paul was responsible for executing, asked that it not be held against Paul. So now he stands in the place of of being entrusted with the gospel of Jesus, and he speaks and lives Jesus' word. Now, here's the thing. Why on earth? I mean that literally. Why on earth do you take a man who's been beaten and shipwrecked and and rejected and all of this stuff, and at the end of his life, you honor him as his God by walking him into the teeth of the Roman Empire where he'll be executed? What possible scenario in your mind God would do that? Paul is the most successful Christian leader in the church. If I were that kind of successful Christian leader, I'd be speaking at conferences. I'd have book contracts. You'd see me on Larry King Live. I mean, I'd be all over the place. Because that's what God does, isn't it? I mean, he, he just gives you more. He just makes life better for you. The reason Paul's walked into this is grace. Because he prayed he wanted to know Jesus. And he just wanted to know at the end of his life he had proclaimed Jesus. And Jesus walked him into this place and said, Okay, me and you, Paul. That's all Paul ever wanted. Just me and you, Jesus. Just me and you. A truth that you must know. We live in a culture, an American Christian culture, that communicates to us very subtly and sometimes very explicitly that the baton of the gospel has been handed to you for your comfort and ease and to fix your life. You get the gospel, and it's kind of like an invitation to Augusta. You get to go out on this beautiful, well-manicured course with all the perfect flowers and the perfect birds and all the people whispering very quietly 
because it's Augusta. And it's just serene and tranquil. And that's the gospel, to lead us into the serene and tranquil life. When you take this baton, you're not being invited to Augusta. You're being led to Afghanistan. You're here to fight a spiritual battle. You're not being led to the place where you won't need him as much. You're being led to the place where you will need him more all the time. And that's where he's leading this church. That's why it's hard for some folks right now. Because it's a spiritual battle. The last thing Paul says, Timothy, the Lord be with you. Grace be with you. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That's my prayer for us as we end this passage. The Lord be with your spirit. 